All right, everyone. Welcome. Welcome back to the Magic Hours podcast. As always, I am your host, Jenny, here with my lovely co-host, Justin. Good afternoon. How are you, Justin? I'm doing good. Great. We are back after a longer hiatus than we anticipated today. Only a few more months than we planned, yeah. We had some issues with the mics, um, but I think we figured them out. And we're ready to record, right? We're here. We're recording. (laughs) It's happening. It's happening. Um, So today we are going to be talking about Alice in Wonderland, my favorite Disney film. A fact I was aware of. (laughs) Did you like this film growing up? Um, I didn't have a lot of feelings about it growing up. I definitely saw it, possibly only once. Um, But yeah, there isn't really any nostalgia tied up with this film for me. It's funny because it's a female protagonist, so I think we're meant to think this is a girl's movie, but it doesn't have any of the princess tropes like the other Cinderella's and Snow White's that we've watched. Yeah, there's no castles or kingdoms or princes or... It's not a love story. It's a story about a child, essentially. So this is the 13th animated feature film from Walt Disney. It is based loosely on the books by Lewis Carroll in the mid-1800s. And it was showed on the very first episode of Disneyland, the TV show, making it the first film ever to be completely shown in its entirety and advertised in the medium of television. Congratulations. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and Walt actually hosted the, the show himself leading up to the opening of Disneyland. And it was clearly on his mind because he dedicated not one, but two attractions to the film, the teacups, and then a dark ride that was just called Alice in Wonderland. Which are also basically connected in Fantasyland, too. Yeah, and they, yeah, they kind of have their own area in the park, and they were both opening day attractions. And you get the Mad Hatter hat shop, too. So it's really a whole Alice corner. And since we're talking about it already... All the characters from that film still appear in the park, and they actually ride the teacups together. It's very cute. Yeah. Um, Of all the early to mid-Disney films, I think Alice in Wonderland is one of the ones where the characters will consistently be included in merchandise and parades and other promotional things. Yeah, they were. there was a whole chunk of the electrical parade that was dedicated to Alice and used her music. I mean, really, they just picked the films at the time, I think, for that parade to include them. But still. And I think Alice appears in different forms at all the different parks. Yeah, no, she's pretty ubiquitous throughout all the parks. We were just looking before we started recording today, and apparently in South Korea, Alice in Wonderland had its own theme park that was abandoned. Yeah, I'll pass on that one. A little creepy. Based on what I saw. But as I was saying, this was and is my favorite Disney film. And when we rewatched it again, I could still remember all the funny little lines in it. And we were saying before we started that it has very dry humor. It's got a much more ironic tone than the more straight up operatic fantasy films that the earlier movies were. It had laugh out loud moments, but it it felt like the movie didn't know it was being funny. It, it, it was, it's serious in its comedy. I think it did. It just, it plays it more deadpan than, uh, than other things, yeah. Totally. So as we'll talk about a bit later, um, Walt had messed around with the concept of Alice many times in his career. And when he finally made this feature film, he wanted to do it right. So all of the songs, all of the voice actors, all of the animators were top-notch. 
this was, I don't know, like as big of an undertaking as Snow White at the time. Like he really put all his resources into it. There was a lot of work that went into it. Um, since he had originally planned to possibly make it a live action or half live action film, they filmed most of the scenes with actors for reference mm-hmm. for almost every sequence. Yeah. Well, I mean, they did that with a lot of animated features at the yeah. time, but maybe not to the same I extent. think Alice did it the most. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to attempt to give you a plot overview before we go any further, so we're still on the same page. But before I do, when you watch it again this time, did you like it? Um, I liked it. I think, I mean, Cinderella is good and classic. But especially coming out of that experimental, where are they going with this phase of Disney movies, the fact that Alice was, I don't want to say cohesive because it's a bizarre, random story, but it had a consistent tone. It was genuinely funny. It was a departure from just the straight up prince and princess trope that had been their other successful films. It definitely stands out as being one that you can enjoy more as an adult. Yeah. I think that one of the things that Disney had been trying to do up until this point, and where it kind of differed from some of the other movie studios and animation companies at the time, was it was trying to make... uh, I guess this isn't totally true, but I was going to say it was trying to make animation that looked like real life. Like, with Snow White, even though there was, like, dwarves and stuff, they were really trying to make the human characters look like humans. Yeah, they put a lot of work into getting the, what we would now call motion capture. Yeah, and even, like, the water flowing correctly and Pinocchio and stuff like that. Whereas in Alice, all that's out the window. Like, it's it's supposed to be goofy. It's supposed to be in the medium of animation, and they play with it a lot. Yeah, they were using animation more for deliberate surrealism this time, as opposed to something like Snow White, where they put so much work into trying to give it photographic depth yeah. and making it seem like a filmed art. art. Yeah. yeah. Okay, plot. So basically, we start out on the bank of a river. Alice is basically bored. She's listening to her sister. Didn't know it was her sister. No, I assumed it was her mother. Yeah, or her babysitter or something. Yeah. Anyway, so she's listening to her sister read aloud from this history book, and she's super bored, and her sister's like, come on, pay attention, and she's like, I'm going to fall asleep instead. So she falls asleep, and she starts singing about a world of nonsense. The song is called A World of My Own, and she's singing to her little kitten, Dinah. Then she spots the white rabbit, who's wearing a waistcoat and carrying a watch. She and the cat follow him into the rabbit hole, where Alice suddenly falls down, leaving Dinah behind. At the bottom of the hole, she follows the rabbit into this chamber-like hallway, but he escapes through a tiny door. The doorknob starts talking to her and suggests that she drinks from a bottle on a table marked Drink Me that just appears out of nowhere. It's a very sassy doorknob, too. Yeah. Um, So basically, she shrinks, and she grows, and she shrinks again, and um, she starts crying because she's so frustrated that her size keeps changing. And then her tears fill up the room and she, uh, eats another piece of the, I don't, is it a cookie? Like, I think there were cookies. Yeah. She cakes. eats a bit of the cookie and shrinks into the bottle that she was drinking from and floats through the keyhole of the doorknob in her own tears, essentially. Mm-hmm. So... She's uh, inside a bottle, like, floating across an ocean on the other side of this doorknob. And 
she sees a shore where a dodo bird is leading a group of animals in a caucus race to get dry. Well, it's kind of weird because he's standing on a post warming his butt on the fire and mm-hmm. the animals are running around in a circle trying to get dry, but then the waves keep crashing on them and getting them wet again. Yeah, the tide just keeps hitting them yeah. again, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's just like ridic- ridiculousness on ridiculousness from the start. Um, she finally gets onto the shore and meets Tweedledee and Tweedledum, two fat twin brothers who recite the walrus and the carpenter, which is a total aside, and I don't know if it's supposed to be like a morality tale or what. What's interesting about this is I remembered the f- outcome of that story differently. Really? Um, I remember the carpenter getting mad. As a kid, for some reason, I thought he was just mad that the walrus killed the oysters. But watching it this time, I think he's just mad that he didn't get to eat any either. Okay, so let's back up. So Walrus and the Carpenter, it's a song. And it's, again, like this, it's very surrealist because the Tweedledee and Tweedledum twins, their faces turn into the sun and the moon. And half of the story is in the sun and half of it's in the dark. It's very weird. So it's about a a giant anthropomorphic anthropomorphic walrus and a carpenter walking down the beach and they're hungry and the walrus is like, hey, it's oyster season. So he literally walks into the ocean with a cane and is like, hey, oysters, like, follow me. I'm going to sing you a song and we'll have a feast. Meanwhile, the carpenter builds a restaurant, like, out of nothing on mm-hmm. the shore. And he marches them in. And then there's a, it's just like a ruse, basically. And then while the carpenter is making soup in the kitchen, he eats all the oysters. And the carpenter is, like, super pissed because he wanted to eat the oysters, too. Yeah. But yeah, for some reason as a child, I thought the carpenter was oblivious to the walrus's plan to eat the oysters. Hmm. I don't know why. He was clearly in on it now that I watch it again, but... Yeah, he was in on it from the beginning. Unless he was so stupid that he actually thought they were planning a feast for the oysters. I think I'd, my child brain just wanted to imprint one of the characters as being more empathetic. But what was the point of that? Like, is it just to be like, oh, well, Tweedledee and Tweedledum like to tell dumb stories? Or is it, like, supposed to be about greed? Or is there something to that or no? I feel like I would know that answer better if I had actually read the book. Very weird. Okay, anyway, so whatever. They tell this weird story. And then Alice just kind of sneaks away from them because she's like, these guys, I don't want to talk to these guys anymore. Um, She finds a white rabbit's house, who she's still chasing, by the way. First, she gets mistaken for his maidservant, Marianne. Um, and then she goes inside and eats another cookie and grows so big that she overtakes the entire house. Which, again, she knew what was going to happen this time, yeah. but she does it anyway. Yeah, it's very weird. Anyway, so the dodo shows up again, and he's like, well, I'm going to try and help. So first he sends Bill, who is a lizard chimney sweep, down the chimney. And then sets the house on fire. Um, but Alice, or I think Alice sneezes and shoots him up the chimney. I believe that's what happened. And this is where, like, the best moment in the whole movie comes. This, this lizard who's just walking by with a ladder. They're like, Bill, help us with this. They shove him down the chimney. And then he shoots out. And the dodo's just standing there. And he's like, well, there goes Bill. <laughs> it's just like, it's so stupid. So Bill's gone forever. Anyway, so she eats a carrot from the garden and shrinks down to three inches tall. So she's lost the rabbit again at this point. 
She wanders into the garden and meets uh, a bunch of talking flowers who sing the Golden Afternoon song. And originally they're like, oh, another flower is joining us. But then they're like, oh, she's ugly. And they shoo her quickly away and call her a weed. There's another funny point in that where one of the flowers, they're all talking and they're like, what kind of flower are you? And this little tiny bulb goes, I think she's pretty. And they go, quiet bulb. <laughs> Just hush the flower. Kid doesn't get to talk. It was so funny. Okay. Then she runs into the caterpillar who's smoking a hookah and they play a little spelling contest and then he turns into a butterfly after getting really angry. At this point, she's sitting on a mushroom and, again, eats part of it to grow very tall and very small. Then she finally gets back to her regular size after having a, after growing very tall and having an altercation with a bird with a nest. Oh, I yeah. That. I do know. Anyway, she finally gets back to her regular size and is wandering around the forest and meets the Cheshire Cat, this weird grinning feline who can disappear and reappear at will in the tree which leads her to the March Hare, who is celebrating his unbirthday with the Mad Hatter and the Dormouse. Alice is getting so fed up with everyone being weird at this point. She's just like, I'm over this. They do the unbirthday scene. Uh, she decides she wants to go home and decides to abandon completely her pursuit of the White Rabbit. At this point, she's lost. She's despondent. She's among a bunch of weird, bizarre creatures, like glasses that have legs and... Weird pipe cleaner looking things. Bird animal hybrids. Yeah. Anyway, so she cries a bunch and then the treasure cat appears and shows her a shortcut out of the forest into where the queen and the king of hearts live. So she shows up at the edge of a maze uh, a hedge maze garden and she meets some playing cards who are painting white roses red. The white rabbit heralds the arrival of the Queen of Hearts and the diminutive tiny king and their army of playing cards. She invites Alice to play croquet uh, using flamingos as mallets, hedgehogs as balls, and card soldiers as their wickets. The Cheshire Cat keeps playing pranks on the queen and like lifting her dress and doing funny stuff and eventually Alice gets blamed for this and the queen orders Alice's execution. The king suggests that Alice puts on trial instead because for some reason he really wants to have a trial. I think he's just bored. Yep. At, so at the trial, all those weird creatures show up, the Mad Hatter, the March Hare, but they're of absolutely no help. And then the Cheshire Cat appears again and causes enough of a distraction to allow Alice to eat the remaining pieces of mushroom she was storing in her pocket, and she grows to gigantic proportions. At this size, she scolds the queen, and as she's like berating the queen, she starts shrinking back and back and back to her regular size. Now the queen commands off with her head, and all the crazy people in Wonderland start chasing her. It's a rigmarole at that point. Yeah, so she's running away, running away, comes to the doorknob, the door is locked, um, but the doorknob is like, don't worry, you're already on the other side, and opens his keyhole mouth to see that she's actually just asleep on the riverbank. And in the worst ending ever, it was all a dream. Yeah, which is probably my least favorite trope to ever be used in fiction. It's up there with, oh, it was an alternate timeline in terms of, oh, great, you're just going to conveniently have no consequences. In this case, though, I kind of don't care. It's a little less invasive in this case. Yeah, eh, whatever. It was fine. So that's the plot of the movie. 
<laughs> it makes very little sense. There's not really any morality to it. It's not about love. So really, it's unlike any of the other Disney films we've watched so far. It is generally unique amongst Disney movies, yeah. Now, I would like to talk about the voices in the film, but first, I just want to mention that all of the nine old men worked on this movie. Every single one of them. In fact, there was ten directing animators on this film that handled different characters and stuff. But Ollie Johnson, Ward Kimball, Frank Thomas, all of Disney's nine old men who were the core animators during Disney's first golden era worked on this film. And they had a really fun time making this film. You can just pull up YouTube and search Alice in Wonderland documentary and hear them all talk about it, and it's super interesting. But on to the voices. Catherine Beaumont is the voice of Alice, and she also voices Wendy from Peter Pan. Which we will be getting to shortly. Yeah, there's only one film in between this and Peter Pan. Uh, Catherine Beaumont was a Disney legend inducted in 1988, and she actually carried on the voices of Alice and Wendy in everything. Video games, House of Mouse, whatever, until 2005, when she retired. That was a long run. (laughs) Yeah, considering this came out in 1951. Yeah, and she's still playing a 12-year-old girl for 30 years. Yeah, so that's pretty iconic. Ed Wynn plays the Mad Hatter. He's also Uncle Albert in the Mary Poppins scene where he goes, I love to laugh. Ha, 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 ha. And they're laughing. I have not seen the original Mary Poppins in a long time. You will. I will. Edwin did a bunch of other Disney movies, and he was also an actor in the Golden Horseshoe Review at Disneyland, which is pretty random. Uh, But the coolest thing about Edwin is that you, I can't remember if you mentioned this or not, but they did uh, reference films for the animation so the characters would like get into their costumes and act out the scene so the animators could like have some reference drawings yeah especially for the tea party him and alice were basically in full costume doing a lot of scenes the audio that they pulled he was just improvising that whole scene but they thought he was so good that they went through like painstaking labor to pull out the audio from that scene and put it into the movie. So he didn't actually get in the booth and re-record it. They just took it from his reference film, which is awesome. Yeah, you don't, especially in the 50s, you don't get that in animation a lot. And again, you can watch that on YouTube if you want. It's black and white and it's like kind of crappy quality, but it's still really cool to see him like acting it out and putting mustard on a watch and stuff. Okay, Jerry Colonna plays the March Hare. Is that name familiar to you at all? No. He was one of Bob Hope's sidekicks. Oh. And he's in all those Road to, like Road to Singapore or Road to whatever films. I was saying we should watch those. We watched one of them, didn't we? Mm, I think we were going to watch Road to Morocco because I remember liking it as a kid. Yeah. He was basically just like a zany zany sidekick comic relief type yeah he did radio and voices for other things but nothing notable nothing else notable with disney but as i go on you're gonna see that the voices chosen for this film are all powerhouse voice actors who had done a million things so moving on um, okay richard gaden he played the caterpillar he was a working actor he was in a zillion things nothing else disney of note sterling holloway played the cheshire cat We've talked about him before because he was the stork in Dumbo. He has a very iconic, sort of high-pitched, breezy, whispery, nasally voice. Well, do you know what character he played? Like, forever? I want to say yes, but tell me anyway. 
Okay, well, I'll give you... An, okay, he was also the Snake Ka in the Jungle Book. Hmm. And he played Rockafor in Aristocats. But Sterling Holloway is the voice of Winnie the Pooh. That's what I thought, yeah. Yeah. So, pretty iconic. Uh, Verna Felton, we've also talked about her already. She played the Queen of Hearts. She was Mrs. Jumbo in Dumbo. She was the fairy godmother in Cinderella. She plays Flora in Sleeping Beauty. And, I don't think I mentioned this before, but her first and last roles with Disney were playing elephants. So her first role was Mrs. Jumbo in Dumbo, who's Dumbo's mom. And she ended by playing an elephant named Winifred in The Jungle Book. Yeah. Mildly well, interesting. I appreciate that when we get to The Jungle Book. Okay. Um, just a couple more. J. Pat O'Malley plays both the Tweedles. So he had some small parts in earlier Disney films that we've watched. He was Br'er Fox in Song of the South. He was also just a policeman in Mr. Toad. But he was the accent coach in Mary Poppins for Dick Van Dyke. Oh. Because he has a Cockney accent. Because he was actually British? Yeah. And finally, Bill Thompson, who played the White Rabbit and the Dodo, he was an iconic voice for MGM cartoons. Do you have any idea who he played? Let's pretend I don't. Okay. You, do you know? No. He plays Droopy the dog. Oh. And once I say that and you listen to his voice, you're like, oh, it makes sense. Okay, so those are the voices. I'm going to quickly touch on the songs as well. So uh, there was over 30 songs written for this film, the most of any Disney film ever. I think still ever. And they hired a bunch of different people. They had the Tin Pan Alley guys working on it. Unfortunately, the only song that made it was the Unbirthday song, which arguably is maybe the most ubiquitous song ever. I mean, it does help that it plays on a loop in Fantasyland by the Teacups all day. But I think everyone, Disney fan or not, knows that song. It stands out, yeah. Um, Yeah, apparently there was a lot of unused songs, but being Disney, they still recycled and reused them for Peter Pan a few years later. Yep, so... There was a song called Beyond the Laughing Sky. It was recycled into Second Star to the Right for Peter Pan, which is another iconic Because why waste those tunes? Yeah. And the title song, just the Alice in Wonderland that plays at the beginning, became a jazz standard, and it's been remade. So those are basically my notes that I had. Justin, what kind of trivia did you have for this? I had a few things. Um, To begin with, and we've said this about quite a few films at this point, The movie wasn't a huge success. Um, Walt wasn't happy with it either. He said it lacked heart, which considering he'd been working on this project since 1939 is pretty disappointing for him. He said that this, the finished Alice in Wonderland, lacked heart? Yes. But he put so much time into promoting it afterwards. Yeah, well, he was a little self-critical too. Okay. But he felt it was empty and didn't encapture what he wanted to do. But you know what? He wasn't happy with Cinderella either, remember? Yeah, he was tuning out before they even finished Cinderella. At this point, he was so deep into his miniature trains and developing (laughs) Disneyland that he wasn't as focused, and the nine old men were kind of working a lot harder on these films. Yeah, I think sometimes the studio knew what was best for them more than he would admit. Um, It was nominated for Best Musical Score, so it got that. Uh, but it had a it had an interesting production because, like I said, he started trying to make it into a film in 1939, and it was going to be live action. There was a lot of test paintings, including the, apparently there's a terrifying baby turning into a pig scene from the book, and there was test 
uh, storyboards for that. I'm kind of happy that didn't make it in. But uh, Paramount did a live-action version first while he was still drafting, <clears throat> drafting all that. So he scrapped it, put it in the can for a couple of decades. Well, some of his, his very first tests that he did blending animation and live-action were the Alice comedies, right? Yeah, the Alice in Cartoon Land shorts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this book was clearly something he'd had in his back pocket since he had started in animation. So, yeah, it's sad that he wasn't happy with it, even if the rest of the world has come to love it. Um, I will say that this is one of the few films like this that does not open with a storybook opening. Oh, my gosh, you're totally right. Uh, Pinocchio, Cinderella, Snow White all begin with someone opening the classic book of this tale. I'm eager to find out. But Alice doesn't. Alice jumps right in. That's really weird because don't we see the book on the shelf in Pinocchio? Yes. The Alice and um, Peter Alice Blaine. and Peter Blaine are, yes, yeah, sitting on a shelf when Jiminy Cricket's walking along. Very weird. Um, so, yeah, the screenplay, too, went through a lot of versions. Uh, Aldous Huxley wrote a version of the screenplay, which apparently he was very happy with, but ended up just being a biopic of Lewis Carroll with a few things about his friendship with a little girl thrown in. So Disney was like, that wasn't the movie I was planning to make. Thank you for your time. Aldous Huxley was a famous science fiction writer. Yeah, Brave New World. Yeah. Um, Another author that everyone studies in university. Yeah, another you-have-to-read-this-book author. Uh, Apart from that, I've got some random trivia. Some of these are kind of about the original novel, or novel, novella, serial, whatever you want to call Alice in Wonderland. Oh, it was two novels. Was novels? Okay. Uh, Okay, so first of all, Lewis Carroll's name is misspelled in the opening credits of this film. Oh! It uh, has the wrong number of L's. Uh, The story did... uh, lend its name to certain psychological disorders about having issues dealing with how you perceive size of objects and the size of your body. Mm-hmm. So Alice in Wonderland syndrome is uh, the name given to that kind of body dysmorphia. Interesting. Um, interestingly, in 1931, the books were banned in China because the animals talked and they found <laughs> that to be offensive. Uh Oh, and there is also a hidden Mickey when the dodo lights his pipe during the burning the house down scene. And that's most of my notes. I think we've covered a lot of the other uh, production stories. So what do you have to add? I thought when I would watch this again as an adult that it wouldn't hold up because that's happened with so many movies so far that we've watched. But it did. It was great. Everything about it is great. I mean, it was one of those things where, like, I remembered all the dialogue and I remembered all the songs and, like, there was such a huge nostalgia factor to me that, like, it's really hard for me to give an unbiased review. But I will say that it held up. No, yeah, I don't have any clear criticisms for this movie. I think the animation was, like, definitely less refined, though. Yeah, I mean, that's a similar with what happened with Dumbo when they were trying to save money, too. Cinderella. Actually, I think the animation was better than Cinderella, though. It was better than Cinderella. 
I think it was better than Dumbo too. Dumbo they went really simple. Yeah. But some of those loading the train scenes, people didn't even have faces. Like, yeah. It was pretty bad. But no, um, I think this movie is just it's one of those that has really stood the test of time. Like we said, it's in every Disney park. Um, people love it. It got remade with popularity by Tim Burton in 2010. Um, it's just one of those stories that never gets old. I think because the material can be adapted a lot for the time it's Absolutely. made in. Uh, like you said, like because she's not a princess and it's not based around that kind of fairy tale, mm-hmm. it's easy to turn her into more of a modern girl. And it's not set in any particular... I mean, sure, she's in England in whatever, like the Victorian age or something. Yeah, late Victorian. But when she goes into Wonderland, like that's so its own thing that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's a little irrelevant unless you want to really dive into, like, the cultural influences on the books. Yeah, but you don't have to. But you don't have to. It's just, like, neat things to look at. <laughs> and the, there's so many different ways to interpret the characters, like the Queen the, the queen of Hearts, the White Rabbit, the King, all of those have had so many different interpretations. And I can't remember if we said this, but a lot of the characters were left out, too. Like, there's no Jabberwocky, there's no Griffin. There's no white queen in this. There's no white knight. Oh, right. There are none of the chess scenes that were in... Do you remember that TV movie that was made? I, I think, think we've, it was Canadian or not. We've talked about this. It was like, yeah, like a low-budget miniseries yeah. or something. Yeah, it was very much like part of my childhood. But I didn't like it. I liked the animated Disney version better. Yeah, it's weird to see a, a restricted-budget live-action version <laughs> of this story. It's, yeah. Because, again, like, every time someone's tried to make this movie, they have to kind of pick and choose which parts they want to highlight because there's, it's just too much. Like, there's too many characters. There's too many weird scenes. It works in a book, but it doesn't, it doesn't work as well on screen. It's a tough sell to make into a movie. I mean, now we're spoiled because you can basically do whatever effects you want. Yeah. Um, but up until the last couple decades... It was an expensive idea to try and do this. What I don't like about the remakes is that they tried to make them really dark and serious. And I don't want Alice to be dark and serious. I want it to be goofy. I want it to be like lizards shooting out of trees <laughs> and stuff, you know? I think we're getting over this now, but for a while in the 2000s, it was like a weird rule people had decided if you want to make an updated more adult version it has to be super gritty and dark yeah um which for some things works and for some things doesn't work and there's other ways to update a story than just to make it grimmer yeah and i'm getting so bored of that like obviously like the christopher nolan batman's come to mind because it was kind of their fault yeah yeah because they were so successful and like, the iteration that we saw of Batman before that was, like, super camp. i just like to point out that I do enjoy the Christopher Nolan Batmans. Yeah. However, yeah, their influence on films was kind of bad because everyone tried to copy them for the next five years. Yeah, definitely. And Alice doesn't need that. <laughs> but I think, like, what Alice represents to me is, like, why I like Mr. Toad so much is that it's just like silly and zany. Absurdist humor. Totally absurdist. It doesn't have to have like a huge like 
moral tale or like cultural significance. This sounds bad, I'm saying. <laughs> or like a grand love story. It can just be like a stupid, silly thing to make you laugh and escape. The lack of love interest is kind of a big point because you usually think of Disney movies almost revolving solely around that. Well, it's become such a trope for people to pick apart Disney. Yeah. They've been really trying to move away from that. But when you think that this was 1951, and it was, I guess, you know, a flop, as we said at the time, but, like, one of the most culturally significant films of the 1900s for Disney, and it didn't revolve around a princess and a love story. Like, people just forget that, I think. Yeah, well, that was another trend in people trying to update movies was just deciding you had to write a love story or love interest into something. Really? Like what? Uh, I'd say that was a 90s thing. It would be like, oh, no, you can't take this old book and make it into a movie if it doesn't have a love interest. You have to write a love interest into this. Yeah, I can see that. It was, yeah, that was a very 90s thing because in the second golden age, like Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, even Lion King, like yeah. pretty much all those stories, they they jammed a love story in there. One of the other tropes it doesn't follow is we don't even meet her parents in this. No, we really get no backstory on her at all, except that she doesn't like working, paying attention, or <laughs> taking responsibility for things. No. No, but it's interesting because, again, all of the other like female Disney characters have tragic parent stories, and we don't even have her parents in this. I mean, she's kind of an opposite because most of the earlier Disney princesses were almost like obsessed with their own duty to other people. You think so? Oh, no, yeah. They were very, I don't want to say obedient, but they were, they felt like they had to be good people, regardless of how bad the people around them were. We've only seen two so far, right? We've only seen Snow White and Cinderella. Yeah, because then it went all short musicals for a while in between. Yeah, but the ones coming up, like Sleeping Beauty is the next one, and that definitely falls under the same... Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, Alice is pretty different in that she has no attachments or responsibilities to anyone but herself. And why does she want to follow the white rabbit? I mean, I think in the beginning she's just like, oh, well, that's weird. He's got yeah. a vest on. Yeah. Where's he go? What for some reason, for? she gets attached to him. But what is he late for? For meeting the queen. To do what? To play croquet? That was decided after she met Alice. I don't know. Don't try and bring like a linear <laughs> cause and effect <laughs> approach to Alice in Wonderland. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, but anyway, it is interesting that she doesn't like fall into any of the same categories as any of the other female protagonists in Disney films. I mean, we've seen kids before, um, like in Song of the South, and why can I never remember the name of the one with the lamb? Uh, so dear to my heart. So dear to my heart. Because it's the less offensive version of Song of the South. Yeah. Less, so unmemorable. So not important. But anyway, yeah, so she's like the first female child character who... Definitely acts like a child. Acts like a child. Yeah, acts like a child. But that's what I like. She's very Mr. Toad-like. She's just doing her own thing. She does whatever comes up in front of her. Yeah. Doesn't think past that. Why do you think this film has had such a long... Like a perennial quality to it. I think part of it is what ended up making it more popular later in re-release is 
it is very creative and it is very psychedelic while it also still has like we said that drier more adult humor it's more of an enjoyable fantasy nonsense experience than something that's just a fairy tale yeah and a fairy tale that reminds you about crappy parts of life too right yeah it doesn't like cinderella she's scrubbing floors and like life is so terrible you don't have that here no i mean there is that little bit when she's lost when she's kind of like well maybe i shouldn't have wished that i was in a nonsense world where nothing had she straight up was like this was my own fault no one was oppressing me she was not oppressed she was just no got herself she just regretted not wanting to do that i don't know (laughs) i think the thing that is challenging about watching these movies and doing this podcast is that there's kind of like i've said this before there's two ways to approach this we can just watch the film and talk about our impressions of it or we can take into account the reaction to it and all the other stuff that comes with watching the film which is, we were just, like, at the beginning, we were just trying to watch the film and, like, give our own reactions to it. But we're getting to the point now that we're watching films that are so beloved and have so many other, like, connotations behind them that it's hard to just watch the film and react to it without having that imprint in your mind. I think that's true of any film that has managed to endure for many decades is it ends up influencing so many other things that it's hard to just react to that original film without seeing all the little threads leading off to other places. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why it's hard to give like a, just like a review of it as a film, because even when I watch it now, like we talk about how the psychedelic era influenced it. Like I don't want to think about drug references and stuff when I'm watching it, because if you just watch the film I don't think that's really implied at all. No, when it was made, no. Well, I guess there is a hookah smoking caterpillar. I mean, that was in the book, though. Yeah. Well, in a book that was written at a time when opium smoking was very popular. But... Okay, never mind. <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, my, my point was trying to be like, I don't want to put all those other things on these movies when we watch them. And it's really hard not to do that. That's true. I was trying to think of an example... Like, I keep thinking of Victory Through Air Power. <laughs> because, like, none of us had even heard of that before, had we? Maybe in a very abstract sense. But we know how the war played out. Yeah, <laughs> when you know how the war ends, watching things in the middle of the war is interesting. Yeah, and it's weird not to put your own connotations on it. But, yeah. So that's really all we have for Alice in Wonderland. Uh Next, we're going to be watching a live-action version of Robin Hood, not the animated animal version. Yeah, not the Errol Flynn classic and not the Disney animated classic, the one that you've never heard of. It's called Robin Hood and His Merry Men, so we'll see how that goes. And then after that, we finally get around to Peter Pan, Bobby Driscoll's final film. Mm -hmm. And we're getting closer to all the movies that I actually remember liking and seeing more than once. Totally. So this has been Alice in Wonderland. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? Oh, how many uh, churros do you give this? Out of five, let's say. I'd give it a five. Really? Is this your first five? It might be. I'm so happy. I also give it five. It, d- it doesn't have any glaring question marks that some of the other ones left me with. I mean, even with the bad ending, though, 
Yeah, well, yeah. But Whatever, I still give it five. Because you know what? It came out in 1951 when that wasn't a thing yet. <laughs> it hadn't, yeah, television hadn't been using and reusing that idea over and over again yet. <laughs> eh, whatever, it's just like, it doesn't matter. It's just, a, it's a frivolous movie, it doesn't matter. Well, I will also give it five. I have no objections to this movie. The music was great, the animation was good, it lives on forever, it has two rides. I love both those rides still. That's it. It's a great film. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. We love you. Goodbye.